Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. It has taken us 23 episodes to do this, but we are now entering our final reflection on the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. This reflection will start by reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In the last episode, we were warned by Jesus about false teachers and prophets who would sabotage and distort the truth of the kingdom way as Jesus has taught us. But also, Jesus shows us here that just as there are true and false teachers, there would also be true and false disciples. And going by what we've just read, it seems pretty important to learn the meaning of what is being taught here. The first thing we are called to consider is this idea of Jesus as Lord. Remember that God was already called this, so there's some degree of claims to deity in play here from Jesus. But perhaps more prominently on the world stage, This title of Lord was already being claimed by Caesar. He was esteemed as much a deity as other pagan gods, and there were shrines throughout the Roman Empire where citizens were required to declare once a year that Caesar was in fact Lord. You even got a certificate for your trouble. When Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was now at hand, this fired a shot across the bows of the empire itself. When he made claims of being Lord, this would come at the expense of giving such recognition to Caesar. Put simply, the idea of Jesus as Lord called for an attitude of going completely all in with Jesus, and there would be great cost at times for making those claims. The Apostle Paul shows us that our salvation occurs when the Holy Spirit leads us to a position of belief and confession. Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. In addition, we also see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3. I want you to know, that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So ideally, this concept of calling Jesus Lord should come from a position of power and conviction. Ideally, it would be a Spirit-led moment in our life that starts us off in a whole new direction, the one that leads us down the narrow road. However, there would be some who would treat Jesus more like Caesar and less like God. You see, you could go to the empirical shrines and make your confession about the lordship of the Roman emperor and even get your bit of paper to prove it. And you could do all of that without it meaning a thing to you. There was no law calling for you to mean it, just a rule that you had to do it. 
and those actions would position you well in the neighborhood you were in. You would have more favor with the empire and its officials, and you would have additional freedoms, rights, and benefits as a result. But Jesus didn't want people who would go through the motions like that. You actually did need to believe and mean what you were confessing. Belief is not merely cognitive recognition. In the Greek, it is a verb. It's an action of the heart and the mind. You are engaged and utterly convinced of the lordship of Jesus, knowing that this will in fact lead to less benefit in the pagan world around you. The empire of the world called for hollow allegiance to a hollow human ideal with the promise of huge but temporal benefits in this world. That's everything the wide path would offer. But the kingdom of God would call for complete and unwavering conviction, belief, and allegiance, with the understanding that almost all of the benefits were being set up for us in eternity. Again, the fruit of our allegiance will shine through. If we are just there for an obligatory comment about Jesus being Lord, and it does nothing to transform us in any way, then we would have reason right now to be quite concerned. However, if this confession leads us to a place of true obedience, then we can know that we are in the right place. How can we know the difference? Well, are we meek or actively looking to become that way? Are we peacemakers? Do we pursue a righteousness that exceeds mere religious observance and instead leads to complete transformation? Do we love our enemies? Do we keep our word and remember the poor and leave judgment to God alone? Note in what Jesus says that this is where obedience is found. Not in the high-profile, outward things, not even in the prophecy and the miracles and the driving out of demons. Jesus shows us here that there will be people who will agree with the mere concept of his lordship, but it will not change a thing about how they live. And there would be others who will live in the conviction of his lordship, and as a result, everything about them changes. And ultimately, the truth of our confession will one day be judged for what it is. There is an event called that day coming. This was a phrase that the Jews in Jesus' first audience instantly recognized as the time where God would put all things back to order. And the same Jesus who walked the earth and taught this kingdom way will be the one who makes the judgment call. Some have quite hastily said this phrase, only God can judge me. In other words, don't confront me about anything sinful and just let me live my life. Well, in light of what Jesus says here, I would say to those people that they are absolutely correct. But I would also like to ask this, are they really ready for that encounter when it comes? With all that said, we are now left with one last question to respond to in the Sermon on the Mount. What are we going to build our life on from now on? Let's look at that idea by first reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. 
because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. A number of years ago, I lived near a large shopping mall that was being built. For about two years, this building site pretty much looked like one big giant hole in the ground. And even despite looking that way, a sign came up one day, making the promise that this thing would be open in just a few months. The whole neighbourhood was sceptical that sure enough, a seven-storey building seemed to be built up almost overnight. It turns out it did open right on schedule. This building took nearly three years to get built, and more than two-thirds of that work was actually the work done on its foundations. We would have to conclude that Jesus the carpenter would have known a thing or two about construction. He clearly knows the value of good footings on a structure and what was good to build on and what was not. It's clear he understood this about temporal things, and it's even clearer that he understood it about the eternal. As far as he is concerned, his teachings on the way of the kingdom of God would be all the foundation you really need in this life. But again, obedience is the key element that we are called to note here. This is not merely a matter of knowing, but doing. It's in practicing out these teachings that we learn to be strong and stable. It's as we live these things out that we encounter the winds and the rains and the floods of life. And it's in those experiences that we find the teachings of Jesus to be absolutely true. You will stand strong if you are willing to adopt, lean into, and live out the kingdom way of Christ. So again, let me ask a couple of simple questions. First, where do you sit with Jesus' claims of being Lord in your life? Is it a nice concept with no action, or is it a conviction that shapes everything? Second, what are you building your life on if it's not Jesus? And can it stand the way Jesus says his teachings can? Again, as I said last episode, if you need help with these things, there is a wonderful church and a pastor down the road from you, no matter where you are. And also, our Facebook page is just a click away. We're going to end this episode and even this section with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for this huge and impacting teaching about the ways of your kingdom. I restate now with conviction that Jesus, you are truly Lord of my life. But I don't want that to be merely lip service. So I ask you to help me to live out this life of complete allegiance to your kingdom way, with full obedience of what you have taught me to be. I ask you for the great gift of the Holy Spirit that I might walk in truth and power as I pursue the narrow kingdom road. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I'll look forward to catching up next time. See you then.